0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 24 through 27. Alec Motier gives chapters 24 to 27 a long title, calling the section the third cycle, two cities in contrast, endurance through to glory. He emphasizes each part of his title and I find that helpful. He calls it the third cycle, connecting these chapters to the two cycles of oracles we've just covered in 13 to 23, but he doesn't call this the third cycle of oracles, so he intentionally leaves off the word oracle. This section doesn't use the word oracle. Still, we can discern a five-part division that parallels our previous two cycles. The second part of the title, Two Cities in Contrast, recognizes this central theme of the whole section of the contrast between the city of chaos and the city of Zion. That's our driving image. We'll see that the city of chaos is not a particular city, such as Babylon or Nineveh. Just as the lines were less clearly drawn in the second cycle as compared to the first cycle, the lines are even less concrete in this third cycle. The city of chaos is an abstract representation of all of human civilization. It is the city of man. We're not considering specific nations. The language of this section wraps all peoples up into one whole. We're looking into the far future, to the end times, at the final judgment of human civilization and the establishment of the eternal city of God. Two cities in contrast. The third part of the title... The third cycle, two cities in contrast, endurance through to glory, emphasizes God's redemptive purposes for those who trust him. A remnant of his people Israel and a remnant of the peoples of the earth will endure through to glory to feast with God in his holy city. I'm using Motier's structure in this series, grouping together the three cycles of chapters 13 to 27 as one major section, which he titles the universal kingdom. None of the other commentaries I have group this section together with the oracles to the nations in 13 to 23. Just Motier does that. But I did notice that most of the other commentaries suggest that connection in the title they use when they break this up into two sections. They all give 13 to 23 a title having to do with judgment on the nations, and then give 24 to 27 a title indicating God's victory for example, Nider titles 13 to 23, Messages for the Nations, and 24 to 27, God's Final Victory. Constable titles 13 to 23, Divine Judgments over the Nations, and 24 to 27, Divine Victory over the Nations. And Oswald titles 13 to 23, God's Judgment on the Nations, and 24 to 27, God's Triumph over the Nations. Now Oswald notes There is an emerging consensus that these chapters cannot be understood independently, but must be understood in context with chapters 13 to 23, as indeed those chapters must be understood in context with these. This section sums up the great themes of the preceding segment and puts them in the most glorious setting. Like a finale, the chapters can be read by themselves, but their greatest contribution is made within the total piece. So is own solid ground, making the connection between our present section and the two previous cycles. When we move linearly down this current passage in 24 to 27, there is going to be a five-part division that parallels the five oracles of those two previous cycles. But I'm going to hold off on looking at that parallel relationship across the three cycles until the beginning of our next lesson. So after setting that all up and arguing that there is a a parallel and there are five sections, I'm not going to look at that five-section structure. I'm going to wait because I find it more helpful to first recognize the chiastic structure of this present passage. When reading through these chapters linearly, just straight down the text, there seems to be a lot of jumping around between related ideas, from destruction to remnant to song back to destruction, then another song. It's not easy to get a handle on what Isaiah is doing. But when we recognize the chiastic structure of the text, the well-balanced integrity of the whole passage falls nicely into place. I'll give you an overview of the chiastic structure and then discuss the text according to each chiastic pair. Remember that a chiastic structure is a type of inverted parallelism, where the first section parallels the last section the second section parallels the second-to-last section, and so on. And there may or may not be a central section. There is a central section in this chiastic passage. Right at the center, the people of God feast with him in Zion. That feast in Zion is going to be in 25, 6-12. to 12. That's our central point, And also the hinge around which the two parallel halves of the chiasm swing. I've referred back several times to the image of Zion in chapter 2. That image includes a double pilgrimage. God has judged both the city of man and his own city of Jerusalem. Present Jerusalem is under judgment. And as there are two judgments, there are also two remnants. A remnant of faithful Jews and a remnant of seeking Gentiles. And they're both streaming into Zion. In this passage, the feast in Zion takes central place. And on either side, we're going to see parallel descriptions of destruction and pilgrimage. The first half of the passage focuses on the peoples of the earth. So the Gentiles who were destroyed in making pilgrimage to Zion. And the second half of the passage focuses on God's people, Israel, who are also destroyed and making pilgrimage to Zion. The chiasm consists of five frames, which I'll label A through E and A' prime through E'. prime. F is our central point. It has no pair. So moving from the outermost frames into the center, A describes the Lord's harvest from a destroyed world, while A' prime describes the Lord's harvest from a destroyed people. Moving to the second frame, we have in B the song of the world remnant, and in B' prime the song of the remnant of God's people. Then C, the sinful world overthrown, and c prime spiritual forces of evil overthrown, then d the waiting world, and D prime the waiting people of God, and finally, on either side of the central feast in Zion, we have e the song of the ruined city, and E prime the song of the strong city. If you'd like a visual to help you see the structure, I have included a chart of the chiasm in the structure charts on the Isaiah resource page at ObserveTheWord.com. So you could go there, download the PDF or the PowerPoint, and you could see the chiasm. This pattern will come into view better by addressing the text in pairs. So that's what we're going to do. This is different from my normal linear movement down through the text. We start with A, the beginning of the passage, and A' prime, the end of the passage. So we're starting with the beginning and the end. These two sections are titled, The Lord's Harvest from a Destroyed World, and the Lord's harvest from a destroyed people. Remember that the first element of each pair is always going to focus on the world of the Gentiles, and the second element of each pair is going to focus on God's people Israel. In both A and A prime, we begin with an image of destruction and end with an image of gleaning the remaining fruit after the harvest. The Lord's harvest from a destroyed world is in 24 1 to 13, The destruction is verses 1 to 12, and the harvest is verse 13. So here we go, Isaiah 24, 1 to 12. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants. And the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants. For they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. The new wine mourns, the vine decays. All the merry-hearted sigh. The gaiety of tambourine ceases. The noise of revelers stops. The gaiety of the harp ceases. They do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Every house is shut up so that none may enter. There is an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. The section begins, Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, and continues on with the description of devastation. No one holds any title over another. The servant becomes like the master, and the maid just like her mistress, because there is no civilization left to establish difference. Everyone is laid low together. This is not one nation, it's the whole earth. The earth mourns and withers. The exalted people of their earth fade away. Verse 5 describes the earth as polluted by the immoral behavior of, of its inhabitants. That image takes us back to the conquest of Canaan. The Amorites were given an extra 400 years before their moral pollution forced the land to spit them out. Leviticus 18, 24-28 warned the people of Israel that if they defiled the land, it would spew them out as well. I don't think the reference to eternal covenant in verse 5 refers to the Mosaic Covenant. I think the reference takes us back further to the common grace covenant, first established with Adam and Eve, then renewed through Noah and applying to all of his descendants. The earth had become polluted by the immorality, injustice, and pride of humanity. So God washed the land clean. Looking ahead to the end of time, we don't see another flood but we do see another judgment. And for the same reason, humankind has broken covenant with God through immorality, injustice, and pride. I think this breaking of statutes uh, is breaking of the moral law that in some sense is in every human heart. As a result, the city of chaos is broken down, desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. That's the destruction of humanity. And it's comprehensive, but not absolute. It looks absolute, but verse 13 refers to a gleaning after the harvest of judgment. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples as the shaking of an olive tree, as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. There's a little bit of hope here. The devastation of human civilization will look like an olive orchard whose trees have all been shaken out and the vineyard after the harvesters have finished their work. There's nothing left. Well, almost nothing. The harvester has left some olives and and grapes to be gleaned. And that gleaning, those leftover olives and grapes, that's going to be our remnant. Moving to the end of our passage, 27, 7 to 13 also depicts destruction followed by gleaning. But this destruction applies to God's people. Isaiah begins with a question, and it reminds me of Paul's question in Romans 11, 11. I say then, they did not stumble, so as to fall, did they? It's not quite the same question, but listen to how it starts with a question. This is Isaiah 27, 7 to 11. Like the striking of him who has struck them, has he struck them? Or like the slaughter of his slain, have they been slain? You contended with them by banishing them, by driving them away. With his fierce wind, he has expelled them on the day of the east wind. Therefore, through this, Jacob's iniquity will be forgiven, and this will be the full price of the pardoning of his sin. When he makes all the altar stones, like pulverized chalk stones, when a sherim and incense altars will not stand. For the fortified city is isolated, a homestead forlorn and forsaken like the desert. There the calf will graze, and there it will lie down and feed on its branches. When its limbs are dry, they're broken off. Women come and make a fire with them. For they are not a people of discernment. Therefore their maker will not have compassion on them and their creator will not be gracious to them. Has God struck Israel? Has he slain his people? Not exactly. Though many fall in the judgment executed on Israel and Judah, the majority are exiled, banished. The earlier language from twenty-four five said that the people of the earth were destroyed for filling it with moral pollution. The text here in verse 8 says, with his fierce wind he has expelled them. Because of their immorality, they're spit out of the land. The forgiveness, the pardoning of Jacob, will come about after a cleansing of the land in which altar stones are pulverized. The Canaanite is and incense altars must be torn down. And I don't think Isaiah goes on to explain how the forgiveness and pardoning comes about. Uh, In fact, we're, we're waiting really to get into that in our middle section of the book of Isaiah. The fortified city here in 2710 is most likely the same idea as the city of chaos in 2410. Israel has been banished, but there's no security in the cultures to which they have been expelled. They may have been expelled to a fortified city, but the fortified city, the city of man, will also become forlorn and forsaken like the ruins of a city in the desert. The city now hosts calves who come to graze on the branches of its trees. The calves strip branches off their bark. Women break off the branches for firewood. All is dry and dead. This is a deserted city. Why? Because they're not a people of discernment. Implied is man's arrogant rejection of God. They scoff at God's call. They insist on their own way. It's a futile choice. polluted in heart and depraved of mind. The way mankind devises for himself leaves a trail of broken relationships and damaged souls. And they don't have discernment to recognize the justice of God's punishment, or even to recognize the consequence of their own sin. So they don't see the wholesomeness of God's way, and they continue to steadfastly refuse him. They have no discernment. So we read in verse 11, therefore their maker will not have compassion on them and their creator will not be gracious to them. God, whose name is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, has brought wrath onto his people and then also onto the world city where they have been exiled because they have turned their backs on his compassion. In wrath he punishes, though in wrath he also intends that some may be saved. Maybe there will be some who get it, who get the devastation wrought by their own sin, that they have brought this wrath on themselves, and maybe there will be some who turn to believe. The gleaning of verse 12 and 13 envision a believing remnant. In that day, the Lord will start his threshing from the flowing stream of the Euphrates to the brook of Egypt. And you will be gathered up one by one, O sons of Israel. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown. And those who are perishing in the land of Assyria will come and who were scattered in the land of Egypt and worship the Lord in the holy mountain of Jerusalem. The focus here is on the sons of Israel Scattered throughout from down south in Egypt to up north in Assyria, the people of God exiled among the city of man are called to make a pilgrimage back to the city of God. Moving to the first inner frame of the passage, B and B prime, we come to songs of the remnant. First, the world remnant, and then the remnant of God's people. So This is B, the song of the world remnant in twenty four fourteen to 16a. They raise their voices, they shout for joy. They cry out from the west concerning the majesty of the Lord. Therefore glorify the Lord in the east, the name of the Lord, the God of Israel in the coastlands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear songs, glory to the righteous one. They are the remnant that come from the gleaning that was left over after the destruction of the world. Robert Alter translates verse 14 this way, it is they who shall raise their voice, sing gladly. So we have a glad song contrasting, verse 11, where there's an outcry in the streets concerning the wine, all joy turns to gloom. This joyful song may come from a small remnant, but it's still a global remnant. It sounds from east and west, glorify Yahweh, the God of Israel. Verse 16 reminds me of Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 when he tells the apostles they are going to be empowered by the Spirit to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isaiah writes in 16a, from the ends of the earth we hear songs. This is the fulfillment of the ministry of the apostles. They go out to gather the remnant, and that remnant is going to come in singing glory to the righteous one. This is the song of the world remnant, Now let's consider the song of the remnant of the people of God. B prime is in 27, two through six. In that day, a vineyard of wine, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment so that no one will damage it. I guard it night and day. I have no wrath. Should someone give me briars and thorns in battle, then I would step on them. I would burn them completely. Or let him rely on my protection. Let him make peace with me. Let him make peace with me. In the days to come, Jacob will root, Israel will blossom and sprout, and they will fill the whole world with fruit. Do you remember uh, when we spoke of a vineyard and, and God is the vine dresser? God is the keeper of the vineyard. Do you remember when that happened? This first verse delivers the imperative. A vineyard of wine, sing of it. The last line declares, Jacob will take root. Israel will blossom and sprout. They will fill the whole world with fruit. So This song of the remnant is a song about a vineyard, and it's a fruitful vineyard. There's good wine, and, and it fills the world with fruit. It contrasts the vineyard that came before. It was in chapter 5. It was the vineyard that produced stink fruit. God cared for that vineyard, but finally gave up since there was no response to his grace. Here, God's care for the vineyard, watering every moment, guarding day by day, produces healthy vines. They take root and they grow and they produce good fruit. In chapter 5, God's wrath descends on Judah. God declares over this vineyard, I have no wrath. Instead, his anger turns against briars and thorns that try to invest his vineyard's cultivated ground, but those who would rely on the protection of the Lord, those who would trust in him, he says, let them make peace with me, let them make peace with me and enjoy his his care, to enjoy him as the one who, who watches over and provides for his vineyard. So far in the beginning and end, we encountered the destruction of the world and the destruction of Israel. Both of those destructions were followed by the gleaning of a remnant. That outer frame was followed by a first inner frame of paired songs sung by a remnant. In the next frame, C and C prime, we return to judgment. In C, the sinful world is overthrown. Then in C prime, the spiritual forces of evil are overthrown. First, the overthrow of the sinful world. This is 2416b to 20. But I say, woe to me, woe to me, alas for me, the treacherous deal treacherously, and the treacherous deal very treacherously. terror pit and snare, confront you, O inhabitant of the earth, then it will be that he who flees the report of disaster will fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. For the windows above are open, and the foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken asunder, the earth is split through, the earth is shaken violently. The earth reels to and fro like a drunkard, and it totters like a shack, for its transgression is heavy upon it, and it will fall, never to rise again. Verse 18 gives us that narrative moment of the habitants of the earth fleeing from the inevitable terror and pit and snare. And then we, we get if you run and fall into a pit, and even manage to climb out of the pit, you will be caught by the snare like a rabbit in a trap. The earth here is all human civilization. It will fall, never to rise again. God has triumphed. We move from the earth to the heavenly places in see prime, spiritual forces of evil overthrown. This is 27 verse 1. In that day, the Lord will punish with his fierce and great and mighty sword Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, even Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will kill the dragon who lives in the sea. What is what is this? This is interesting. We should have already read twenty four twenty one if we were going through linearly. But since I'm following chiastic pairs from outside in, uh, we haven't yet. We'll get to twenty four twenty one in the next frame. There we read of God's punishment against hosts on high and kings of earth. So we actually have already been set up for thinking of of spiritual forces, and we have both of those in C and C prime first the earth falls, now the powers in the heavenly realms fall, referred here as Leviathan. And that's a recognizable image in the ancient Near East. According to Robert Alter, the entire line invokes the Canaanite myth of Leviathan as the primordial sea monster that the weather god Baal must subdue in order for dry land, safe from the raging sea, to come into being. So the separation of water from land requires this act of warfare in the heavenly realms. It's a common element of creation myth in the ancient Near East. Whether the names are Leviathan and Baal, or maybe you've heard of Tiamat and Marduk, whatever the name, the storm god defeats the supernatural sea monster who is one with the chaos of the sea. And it's quite possible that the reference in Genesis 1-2 of the spirit hovering over the water... It's not about the ancient myth, but the way of using that language seems to include a rejection of the ancient myth. It It is the spirit of God. It is God himself who is going to bring order out of chaos. And he is going to separate land from sea. He is the one that calls into being that which was not. He is the one who shines light into the darkness. So this false... Worldview is in in the background in the ancient Near East, and some it's in the background in biblical stories sometimes. But here it's it's being drawn in. Leviathan, with its connection to the sea, represents supernatural chaos. That was a common image of the sea and chaos go together. In 24:10, Isaiah referred to human civilization as the city of chaos. Isaiah employs the myth of Leviathan here to briefly but powerfully refer to the powers of darkness. Our focus is on God's judgment of wicked humanity. But here, briefly at least, we're reminded that the struggle for righteousness is not just against flesh and blood, but it's also against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Isaiah is not going to get into explaining those spiritual forces of, of wickedness. He's just giving us a short reference to remind us of their reality and of God's victory over those forces. The verse uses the word serpent twice, That's the same Hebrew word used in Genesis 3-1 for the serpent that tempted Eve. So that's interesting. A third verset uses the word dragon, which could also be interpreted as monster. We have then a fleeing serpent, a twisting serpent, and the dragon in the sea. The adjectives fleeing and twisting are not easily translated. We could use different adjectives there. It's not really clear in the Hebrew. Motir sees three different powers in the text. Fleeing could also mean gliding, which Motier takes to be flying. Twisting could suggest the movement of a snake on the ground. He interprets the three as beings of air, the gliding serpent, of earth, the twisting serpent, and of sea, the, the monster in the sea or the dragon. I think only one power is in mind here. You can take each verset as contributing to a sense of movement. You know, Leviathan flees or glides, flees, twists, moves through the waters of the sea. And so we're not seeing three different powers. We're we're envisioning the movement of this one power. And Oswald agrees with that. He quotes an Ugaritic verse that uses the same threefold form to reference one monster. It was translated with older English language. If you smite Lotan, the serpent slant, destroy the serpent, torturous, shalyat of the seven heads. It sounds great that way, but that's from an Ugaritic myth about Leviathan. And it's the same. It's a three-part repetition of the same monster. So I think that's what's going on here. But whether we're speaking of three powers or one power, the sword of God, with its threefold description of fierce, great, and mighty, that's his sword, it's going to slay the beast. And when God brings an end to the chaos of moral rebellion fomented on earth, he's going to defeat both human and spiritual powers. God triumphs. Now moving inward to the next frame, D presents the waiting world and D prime the waiting people of God. First, the waiting world. This is short, only three verses, 24, 21 to 23. So it will happen in that day that the Lord will punish the host of heaven on high and the kings of the earth on earth. They will be gathered together like prisoners in the dungeon and will be confined in prison. After many days, they will be punished. The moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. Here's that reference to host of heaven and kings of earth. Both will be punished, confined in a prison. The verse that, and after many days they will be punished, doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be punished many days after being confined to prison. If we're reading it linearly, that could work. I take it to be a restatement telling us something about the punishment. They will be punished. After many days, they will be punished. They will be thrown into prison. The restatement is adding the element of time. They will be punished, but not right away, after many days. I think that's the way to take that. Following that punishment, God will reveal himself in glory on Mount Zion. My English translation doesn't catch what Isaiah emphasizes when he says the moon will be abashed and the sun is shamed, Isaiah didn't use the normal words in Hebrew for sun and moon. He used poetic references. The moon is the white one, and the sun is the hot one. So he's emphasizing in his references the brightness, the white one and and the hot one, the brightness of the sun and the moon. And what are they embarrassed or ashamed of? They are embarrassed of how dim they look in comparison to the glory of the Lord shining from Jerusalem on Mount Zion. It's a wonderful piece of poetry right there. So in this D, the powers of the world await punishment. In D prime, the people of God wait for the glory of his presence. This passage is longer, 15 verses. So listen for the overall sense of the message. As the faithful wait for the Lord to complete his work of judgment, to punish the powers of of the earth. This is 26, 7 to 21. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. At night my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. For when the earth experiences your judgments, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not preserve the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and are put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Lord, you will establish peace for us, since you have also performed for us all our works. O Lord, our God, other masters besides you have ruled us, but through you alone we confess your name. The dead will not live, the departed spirits will not rise. Therefore, you have punished and destroyed them, and you have wiped out all remembrance of them. You have increased the nation, O Lord, you have increased the nation. You are glorified, you have extended all the borders of the land. O Lord, they sought you in distress. They could only whisper a prayer. Your chastening was upon them. As the pregnant woman approaches the time to give birth, she rises and cries out in her labor pains. Thus were we before you, O Lord. We were pregnant. We writhed in labor. We gave birth, as it seems, only to wind. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth, nor were inhabitants of the world born. Your dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. Come, my people, enter your rooms and close your doors behind you. Hide for a little while, until indignation runs its course. For behold, the Lord is about to come out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will reveal her bloodshed and will no longer cover her slain. God must punish wickedness, and we who are faithful must wait for it. It happens in God's timing, not in our timing. So we know it's going to happen. Um, They must wait for punishment, and we must wait for justice. There's so much to notice here. I'm going to mention just four things. First, this faithful remnant delights in God, saying, You're the desire of our souls. Second, this faithful remnant acknowledges their dependence on God. We could not accomplish deliverance for the earth. You have performed for us all our works. Third, their promise that God will grant life. They gave birth to the wind, but they say of God, your dead will live. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. And fourth, patience is encouraged. Hide for a little while. The Lord is about to come. We come now to the final inner frame before reaching the central point and we encounter two more songs of exaltation. The first is the song of the ruined city and the second is the song of the strong city. So this is E, the song of the ruined city, 25, one through five. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name for you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness for you have made a city into a heap a fortified city into a ruin. A palace of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will rever you. For you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall, like heat and drought. You subdue the uproar of aliens. Like heat by the shadow of a cloud, the song of the ruthless is silenced. When I read verse 2, you have made a city a heap and a fortified city into a ruin. I'm thinking of that, that theme through this whole passage of the destruction of the city of man. And I'm reminded of a passage from the Greek general Xenophon. Xenophon wrote about coming upon ancient ruins of a massive city that was left uninhabited. Millions of sunbaked bricks crumbling into dust. Xenophon had been hired to fight in a Persian civil war. The year was 400 BC. Being on the losing end, he and his 10,000 Greek soldiers fled back to Greece through Mesopotamia. On their way, they happened upon this vast deserted city, only inhabited by scattered nomads and random villagers. But judging by the miles and miles of city wall, hundreds of thousands, possibly a million citizens, had lived there once. It was quite a shocking sight to come upon in the wilderness, something you expect after a zombie apocalypse. The the city was larger and as technologically advanced as anything Xenophon had seen in his travels from Persia to, to Athens, but he didn't know who built it, and he didn't know it was there. He just happens on it. He asked the natives who built the city, they said the Medes, but that's only because the memory of the Assyrian Empire had been completely lost, even to those few who remained living right here at the heart of the former empire. So barely 200 years on, and nobody even remembers that they built this enormous city, nor that they ruled a vast empire from this spot. Xenophon's describing the ruins of Nineveh. He measured the base of the walls to be 50 feet wide and 50 feet high, just the base, 15 by 15 meters. And there was still another 100 feet or 30 meters of brick wall still standing on top of that base. There were homes and temples and palaces and courts and streets intact. Dan Carlin, in his Hardcore History podcast, called it the ultimate Statue of Liberty in the Sand moment. He's referring to the end of the first plane of the Apes movie, the, the old version. And we're on what we thought was some foreign planet. And the camera pans across the barren plain. And suddenly we see, sticking out of the sand, a third of the Statue of Liberty. And it's like, oh my gosh, the, where's New York? It's gone. And there's just the, the, the lady holding up the flame. But not only is the city gone, the whole memory is gone. And for us today, it's sort of unthinkable, just as it would have been unthinkable to anyone in Isaiah's time that Assyria would be so devastated by Babylonians and Medes that the great city Nineveh, you tell in 200 years, the great city, this general, is going to be walking in the wilderness, and he's going to come by these great walls and all these towering buildings, and he's going to have no idea where does this come from, who built this. O oh, Lord God, you have made a city into a heap, a fortified city into a ruin. A place of strangers is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. In the end, all of our works are vanity. In the previous passage, the, the people of God said we, we gave birth as if giving birth to the wind. What did we really produce of eternal value? So our works, God, are nothing. You you have to do our works for us if it's to last, if it's to be of worth. And so in this passage, the strong are are going to be forced to glorify God. It's that every knee shall bow, whether you want to or not. And so maybe not out of a yielding heart, but out of grudging respect that a a, that a powerful people is going to attribute to the might of the one who has completely destroyed their unconquerable army. Humanity must realize at some point, how small we really are. The ruthless must acknowledge the strength of God in the last day when they see the helpless and the needy, all those they have oppressed, gathered behind God under his protection. Those who are such an easy mark of oppression are are defenseless and vulnerable no more. The city of man has fallen. Its walls and palaces, its marketplace and theaters stand in ruin. Business, politics, sport, academics, art, it will all be forgotten. Man's works will be consumed with fire, and that which is gold and, and good, you know, and, and the gems and the silver will pass through the fire. Everything else is burned up. Our towers of Babel don't stand, our monuments to ourself. God has overcome the ruthless and the wicked. So sings the remnant as they make their way on pilgrimage to Zion. The plans God formed long ago, he has worked out with perfect faithfulness. The strong city is God's city. This is E-prime, the song of the strong city, 26.1-6. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God, the Lord, we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unsellable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it, the feet of the afflicted, the steps of the helpless people. God is the rock. God is the strong fortress. You run to him. Finally, we come to the central passage, the singing Pilgrims Enter Zion, welcomed to the feast of the Lord, 25, 6 to 12. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab will be trodden down in his place, as straw is trodden down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride together with the trickery of his hands. The unsaleable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, even to the dust. The feast is an image of joy and relationship, sitting down together with God at a lavish meal. The wine is not just aged, it's aged and refined. I'm reminded of the choice wine Jesus produced at the wedding he attended and of his later parables that depicted the kingdom of God as a wedding feast. This is God inviting us to experience relationship with him, and it's it's joyful and it's abundant. And The text says that God swallowed up the covering, which is over all peoples. I assume that's the curse of death that hangs over us all. In earlier chapters, it was Sheol that swallowed up the dead. Here it's God who swallows up death. What a powerful reversal. New Testament authors pick up on Isaiah's language here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 54, speaking of our imperishable resurrected bodies, Paul quotes Isaiah declaring, death is swallowed up. Also in Revelation 21, 4, describing the new heaven and new earth, John quotes Isaiah, assuring us God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The believer is the one who has waited for the promises of the Lord to be realized. Isaiah proclaims, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. As we enter into the feast, we will know that our waiting is over. Our hope is realized. So he says, let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The victory of God has two sides. It means peace and joy for those who have entered into the feast, And it means loss for the wicked who persisted in rebellion. In this passage, the faithful have entered. Moab, like the older brother, chose to remain outside. Moab is not singled out as worse than any other rebellious nation. There's a literary connection, I mentioned this earlier, between the three cycles that we're going to look at in our next lesson. The oracle to Moab is going to be parallel to this passage. So Moab gets to be the concrete example of those left outside the wedding feast by their arrogant refusal to enter into relationship with God. And the image is shocking. God's hand rests on his mountain, the place where he feasts with the faithful, but his foot stamps Moab down into the latrine after being cast into the manure. Moab, the epitome of self-reliant humanity, spreads out his hands in the middle of it to swim himself to safety. That's the image of man's self-sufficiency. And it's that very arrogant self-assurance that seals Moab's faith. He will not say, Lord, save me. So God doesn't respect the cleverness of his hands and his futile attempts to try to swim through the manure. The fortifications of his own worldly achievements are going to crumble to dust. That's the city of man. It will be fully forgotten. Mankind, you cannot save yourself. And yet Moab will not be saved by another. Two cities stand in contrast. The city of man and the city of God. The city of man will descend back into primordial chaos back to where the Spirit was hovering over the waters. It will be desolate and forgotten. But those who trust in the Lord wait faithfully for the completion of His purposes, and they will endure through to glory, and they will feast with Him in His city, a strong city of peace and light that has no end. That's the hope of your salvation. Let us rejoice and be glad in Him. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.